Today we're going to be starting a new series, and you can maybe imagine that maybe this was the words of, of Peter. We're going to be, uh, we took a little break from Peter. We did First Peter, and then through the holidays we had some, some other uh, Christmas program and Christmas messages and stuff. We're going to continue on, and we're going to jump into Second Peter starting today. Um, this letter was written a few years after First Peter. Uh, it appears to be written to the same audience. So if you remember, we were talking um, that, that Peter was talking to the, the Christians scattered throughout the providence around Rome. Peter's letters differ a little bit from Paul's letters in that Paul more often was writing to a specific person or to a specific church where Peter's letter is addressed to all who share the same faith that he does. If you remember from our study of First Peter, uh, Nero was the emperor. Nero was uh, no friend of Christians. Uh, he was responsible for much of the per- persecution that the Christians suffered, both losing their lands, um, being, being uh, tortured and killed in the most horrific ways, even crucifica- crucif- crucifixion. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, Peter's writing this really just a few years before he's going to experience that fate himself. Um, if we jump ahead and we look to Second Peter, so we're going to go halfway into the, the chapter, just as kind of a prelude. Second um, Peter 1, 14 through 15 says, For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life, so I will, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Peter writes this knowing that these are likely his final words of encouragement to his extended family of believers. And his primary desire in these last days is to work hard to make sure that when he's gone, that we remember his teachings. And today, we're grateful that he did so, so that we can continue to be encouraged. So let's see what it was that Peter wanted us to remember. I'm going to start at, uh, back at verse 1 now. This letter from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace and as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. I find it interesting that even before he mentions his credential of of being an apostle, he refers to himself as being a slave. Many of us have read this language enough times before that maybe we kind of glaze past it. Um, But in Peter's time, as as well as today, uh, being a slave is what you might call a bad thing. You don't want to be a slave. Um, it is not, uh, it's not something you desire to identify in. In fact, it's something that you hope that someday you might be able to step out of, that you might not be a slave. Um, I don't know uh, about you, but when I use the word uh, ownership to describe a person, it says that somebody owns somebody else, it makes me cringe a little bit. Um, if you remember from our study in First Peter, we talked about how a slave in that culture um, was void of identity. They had what they, they said, basically, they had no persona. They used the, the word 
don't know what the Greek word for persona was, but that was kind of the term that became popular that during that time they were thought to have no, no past, no future, no family. They only had the identity of belonging to their master. The incredible thing about this description of himself is that he's not saying this as a complaint. He's not saying this in some sort of state of misery. Instead, he is declaring it as a badge of honor, as being a slave to Christ. Uh, Peter is a willing slave to Jesus, and he's only able to bear that title because he has chosen to hold fast, fast to the faith that has been given to him through Jesus Christ. So this verse kind of alludes to the fact that we, um, that we need to surrender our identity and replace our will for his will. But we see throughout the Bible this concept, this idea being explained uh, very clearly. If we look at Galatians 2.20, it says that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our old life is put aside and we take on this new life, this new identity as a, as, as a child of Christ, as Jesus is our master, Jesus is our identity. When we say yes to Jesus and his calling on our lives, we're making a commitment to him that he is now Lord of our lives. This is a commitment. He is our master. We've chosen this. We're determined and dedicated to follow this. When I think of this sort of commitment, it reminds me of uh, wedding vows. And um, in a wedding, a man commits, a man and a woman commit to each other to love and serve one another. And then in my case, uh, immediately, seconds after you make this commitment, and just before you are just before I was supposed to walk down the aisle with my new bride, she whispers in my ear that she wants me to skip. <laughs> this is not a plan. She wants me to skip down the aisle, and, uh, and this is in front of all my friends and family, and it's in this moment that I realize that uh, my life is no longer my own. <laughs> so our, uh, our state as a slave to Christ is to be a, a higher level of surrender than what our marriage is. God is number one. God is primary. We may, um, we may discuss with our spouses a little bit about, about what the future has in store for us, but God has the perfect plan, and we surrender to what that is. Um, and like marriage, uh, this commitment is not a form of bondage, but instead it is a precious gift. For unlike earthly masters, slave owners, um, unlike earthly masters, God loves us. And though our lives are now to bring glory to him, we end up resulting, the result is that we end up being blessed. So in verse 2, it says that as we grow in knowledge of him, we will receive more and more of God's grace and peace. And that's what we're going to be focusing on mostly today is, is a knowledge of him uh, and what that means. There's two different Greek words that are used in the New Testament for the word knowledge, and both of them are actually used in the beginning of First Peter. The first one of them is the word gnosis, and then there's also the word epinosis. Now, gnosis is just an intellectual knowledge. 
um, where epinosis is an experiential knowledge. So the difference between the two of them is that one is just knowing information about a person or about an event, where epinosis, this experiential knowledge, this would be um, having actually known the person, spent time with them, or actually being at the event. It's a different kind of knowledge, different kind of understanding. So when we read in verse 2, this is the experiential knowledge. This is walking with God. This is knowing him personally, not just reading about him. Um, The more we walk through life and fellowship with God, the more and more grace and peace we receive. The New King James uh, says it like this. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it's not that grace and peace are something that, um, that we earn, that as we get to know him, we earn more grace and peace. Uh, that wouldn't even make any sense. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. It's something that you can't earn. So um, instead of the fact that you, instead of earning it, by knowing God more, um, you receive more of what he's already offering, stuff that you haven't received in the past because you didn't realize it was available. You didn't know that that was part of who God is and what he had for you. So as we grow in knowledge of him, we grow in receiving the grace that was always there from the beginning. Um, The same is true with the increase of peace. The peace is, is always there, but the more we walk through life's challenges with God, the more we experience that he carries us through and that he is um, someone you can trust no matter what situation arises, the more that we have peace when the next situation comes, the more that we can trust that he will carry us. Um, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, It's by his divine power that God has given us everything we need for, godly, for living a godly life. You're going to hear me say that phrase quite a bit. Um, we have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable us to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. We're going to break this down a little bit. Um, so Peter, he's continuing to talk about this experiential knowledge of God, which in normal conversation we would just call a relationship. Um, not like the new ones where you follow each other online and you just give each other thumbs up symbols, but like the old-fashioned ones, you know, where you, you talk to each other and you did stuff together. Um, the cool part about this, and I, I said I was going to repeat this, it says that Everything we need for living a godly life is found in knowing him. We receive just by knowing him. Now this is, again, this is the experiential knowing. This isn't just reading about him. We experience this by spending time with him, by getting to know him. Um, God is giving us everything we need for living a godly life, and we've received all of this by coming to know him. It reminds me uh, of the the allegory that Jesus gave of of the vine and the branches. In John 15, it says that, yes, 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Uh, the, the part that stood out to me in that analogy or allegory, I always get those two mixed up. Um, the part that is striking to me is, is that um, the, you don't have to work at it. This is the part I, I have to keep on reminding myself is that the branches are not stressing out trying to grow. You know, they're not flexing their muscles. It, it's not the branches that are exhausted, that get exhausted by the process. Um, they simply have to remain attached to the vine. All the strength, all the energy, all the direction and provision comes from simply staying close to and knowing the vine. Um, Peter says, in him is everything we need to live a godly life. This is an overarching promise, and within it, there's contained a bunch of specific promises. Um, In uh, verse 4, Peter refers to the great and precious promises that are given to us. Uh, According to one person's count, there's 7,474 promises in the Bible. I'm not going to mention them all today, but um, here I have a few of them that I would like to share with you that are promises that help us to live godly lives as God has called us to. Um, We'll start with uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we have the promise that we are a new creation. Our old self that was held in bondage to our fleshly desires is now dead, and we have the power to choose God, to choose to put on the nature of God. We have freedom from that old nature. Then we have promises like the promise of wisdom. In James 1.5, it says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. We have the promise that we can overcome the devil's temptations, just as Jesus did. In James 4, 7, it says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In submission to God, with choosing to use his strength and his authority, we can resist the devil and have victory over him. We can live that new life free from the temptations of the evil one. Um, Verse 8 continues by saying, Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, uh, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. If we come close to God, he will come close to us. This is a promise that God will never resist us when we turn to him, when we run to him. Um, Another promise, Isaiah 40, verses 30 through 31 This promises us strength when we would otherwise be weak. Even the youths youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lastly, the power that brings all of these promises um, alive in our life that gives us the strength to change 
is found in the promise that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in and reminds us and strengthens us to uh, apply these truths in our hearts and our lives. And, um, and it is that Spirit in Galatians 5 that produces in us attributes like love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Bible is full of promises to those who have entered into a relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And those promises are guarantees to us of everything that we need to live a godly life. And they're all available to us from knowing God, having a relationship with him. Um, moving on to Second Peter 5 through 9. It says, in view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Last week, uh, we briefly talked about our new life in Christ. Uh, the fact that it's not, it's not just an admission ticket into heaven, but that after we've received it, we're, we've begun a process. Um, we read from Colossians on how we need to um, put on the, our new nature and be renewed as we learn to know the Creator and become more like Him. So as we learn and we become more like Him, this is a process. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear the word process, sometimes it's kind of a negative thing in my mind. It makes me think of work or something that I don't really want to do. Uh, in my last job, we had a lot of processes that, I don't know, in my mind, I thought of the paperwork I had to fill out. And, and there's, there's, there's physical papers, there were online documents. And in some cases, we had to fill out the same exact information in like four different places. And I'm pretty sure nobody ever looked at any of them. And it was just a little bit frustrating, something that I, I really, uh, was probably one of my least favorite parts about the job because it just didn't make sense to me. Um, maybe you have some tedious or even strenuous or frustrating processes at your work, and you can kind of relate to that. Well, I just want to let you know, this is not one of those processes. This is not one that should be uh, a form of, of strain and stress, and um, it's not something that has little to no value. Um, have you, this, is a, this is a process of becoming more like God. Have you ever known uh, a kid who wanted to become like their favorite athlete or like their favorite musician. Uh, maybe they admired them and they strived to, to play ball just like them. Or they tried over and over to play a guitar solo just like their favorite uh, musician. I remember as a kid uh, when I was playing basketball in junior high, um, I did not play very much. I was not very good. But I remember kids, uh, Michael Jordan, was, was a big deal. And, and they would go up to the, you know, to do the layup and they would stick their tongue out as they did it. Cause Michael Jordan in some of the pictures would have his, his tongue out as he's going up, you know, to, to dunk it or whatever. And so 
they wanted to be just like him. They, they admired him, and um, they wanted to be more and more similar to the person that they've chosen to emulate. So this process of becoming more and more like the God we love, um, this is a process where we've chosen to, uh, to emulate the God of the universe. The, there is no better design. There's no better uh, person to model your life after. This is God. Um, so we're going to take a, a closer look at what this process might look like. Uh, verse 5, <clears throat> it says, in view of all of this, and just to recap, all of this encompasses all that we need to live godly lives and the promises that enable us to share in his divine nature, uh, which we've received through um, knowing him, the one who's called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory. So in view of all of that, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral uh, excellence with knowledge. Um, before he even lays out the key components, um, so as, as we read earlier, there's a whole bunch of, of different virtues or, or character traits that are, are laid out. Before he lays out the components, he first talks about how to approach the process. He says to make every effort... In other words, we need to prioritize it. But when we say that we're going to make every effort to complete a task, it means that we take all of the other tasks and we make them secondary. We set them aside so that we can complete the task that is primary. Um, secondly, he says that we are to supplement our faith with a generous provision. In some translations, it just uses the word add. But the word that is, is used here comes from a Greek word that um, was used to kind of describe somebody who is of a high stature that gives a lavish gift or provides uh, a, a service or a entertainment to, to, to a group of people. This is something that, uh, that someone uh, wealthy might do or somebody of a high statesmanship. Uh, so you might see this today and just, you know, somebody who's rich, uh, somebody might expect that they're going to leave a really big tip. Um, I don't know how well, other places in our society, I, I don't roll with the crowd that, that has these different uh, expectations of them. Um, but as a child of God, we are the recipients of the exceeding abundance, abundant promises of God. And we are to add generously to our faith, moral virtue, moral excellence, virtues, knowledge, um, self-control, all of these different traits we're supposed to add generously to our lives. And because all of these qualities uh, appear to look, they appear to be building on top of one another, um, it made me start to think about construction or building a house. So maybe some of you guys will, will connect with it, maybe you won't. Most of you guys at least live in a house, so you have that as a reference. <clears throat> I started thinking, um, so I started thinking about it this way. So this is, this is the analogy. So let's say that you are a brand new uh, believer, and you've just received a new life in Christ. <clears throat> this new life that you've found in, is, uh, is the foundation. This faith that you have in Jesus is the foundation that we're going to build on. So before you start anything, you've got the foundation. If you imagine a, uh, a job site where all you've got in the middle of it is a, a cement slab or a, or a brick foundation. 
All right, so the first thing that gets delivered to this job site is going to be moral excellence. This is going to be all of your building materials. Everything you need to build the house is here. This is the studs, the trusses, the sheetrock, the plywood, the shingles, everything. Um, You are going to use the very best materials. And more importantly, or just as importantly, I don't know if it's more importantly, you're not going to use the materials that are not good. You're not going to use materials that are weak or defective or ones that are decayed, materials that are not going to last. This life of virtue shows God our love and, it, and also, um, it, it shows love because of our obedience, right? God says that we show our love to him through obeying him, through, through um, not just hearing what he says, but doing it. Um, the other thing that being obedient to God does and having love for him it is, and building with all these virtues is it makes us a better light into the world. This, this structure we're building is going to be displayed to the world to show the greatness of our God. And, and we're actually... Uh, showing who God is. We're, we're bearing his name. We're taking on his image. Uh, when people see us, we're supposed to be a reflection of him. So the materials that this structure is being built of out of are attributes of God. Some of the materials that are added to this foundation of faith would include things like honesty, sexual purity, kindness, patience, hope, charity, trustworthiness, and compassion. So not only are these character traits um, that make, not only do these make us great ambassadors for Christ the world, but they're also a protection for life. When you apply these traits to your life, it's a protection because the opposite of these traits, if you don't have these traits, that's basically saying that the opposite is built into your structure. So, um, if we, if we don't have honesty in our life, if we, if that means that we're, we have lies in our life. Eventually down the road, that's going to lead to some destruction. Our house is not going to stand. Um, if you're not sexually pure, that is going to mean that you are less likely to have a whole family. Your, your family is more likely to end up broken or damaged through adultery or pornography. If you... Don't show compassion in your life. If you, are, if you are greedy, if you don't show love for others, when you find yourself in need, you're less likely to find that other people gather around you and lift you back up. So these, these building materials that we're adding to our life um, not only uh, show our love for God, but they are a protection for our life because God is a great architect. He knows what is going to make a life that is durable and that will last. And um, when we do that, our life is filled with more and more grace and peace. The next building block is knowledge. Uh, In the construction analogy, uh, this would be learning how the house is built. Uh, How do we install the materials uh, what is the purpose of each material? Uh, how, do you, how do you use it once it's installed? If it's a window, a door, or electrical system, how does it all function? Earlier, I mentioned two different uh, Greek words for knowledge. One of them was epinosis, and the other one was gnosis. Um, this is gnosis. This is just 
This is just knowing things. This is knowledge. It, it could include experiential knowledge, but it's not specifically that. It could also be knowledge that you gained from reading or hopefully knowledge that you might learn from listening to somebody teach about a topic. Um, the building blocks of knowledge inform us on what each of these virtues should look like, um, how they should be lived out, and how to properly fasten them, fasten our morals and our virtues securely in our life in a way that they will last. And we do that by knowing what God says about them so that when the winds of culture and, and the shifts of, of, of the, the world that we live in start to put pressure against those morals, you can hold on to the truth of what God has said about them. You know what they are, how they work, and why they're established, and that they are indeed a part of who God is. And so we use this knowledge to secure those morals, those virtues in our life. A good way to determine uh, what knowledge it is that we need to add to our lives um, would be to ask the Holy Spirit and to consider why it is that we believe what we believe. And if you find out that you don't know exactly why it is you believe you, what you believe, um, learn, gain knowledge um, about why that is. And you can do this uh, in a couple different ways. A uh, primary way would be studying the Bible. The Bible is our, our main source, is the source that trumps every other source. We use the Bible to determine whether or not anything else that we've heard or learned or read um, is, is truth. And so uh, the best is to know what the Bible says. The second thing would be uh, go and ask somebody that you know is a mature Christian, somebody who you uh, see the fruits of the Spirit in their life and flowing out of their life, and um, and start a relationship with them. Ask them. Uh, the Bible calls this being discipled. Find somebody to disciple you on whatever it is that you don't feel confident in or that you don't understand. Um, there are a lot of resources online. There's a lot of things that you can read on the internet. Some of them are very good. Some of them sound very good, but they're not truth. And so um, you got to be a little bit careful about that. Um, there's some false teachings out there. But I'm not going to get into that today because in chapter 2 we talk about false teaching. So you have to wait for that. Um, moving on to verse 6, the next one is self-control. <clears throat> so the next uh, key to our construction project is choosing, um, choosing to build according to the architect's plan according to the knowledge that we've gained instead of coming up with our own plan and our own way that we're going to put it together. If the design calls out uh, six-inch nails and we feel like we could do it with four-inch nails um, and we just think that's easier and it'll be sufficient, it may not be good enough and we may find out later that things start to fall apart. So in self-control, we learn to submit to what the architect has designed and trusting that his way is better. So we had just added knowledge to this life built on a foundation of faith, um, but now we're going to use self-control to apply that knowledge to our life, even when we don't feel like it. How many know that sometimes the things that you learn uh, can, can kind of fight against that old nature that we're still trying to, trying to push down? 
and self-control that helps us to continue to push down uh, our old self and choose to emulate God and become more and more like him. Um, We remind ourselves that our end goal is to not be like we were, but to be like something different. James puts it this way in uh, verse 22. It says, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. How many of you have been in a service like this before and something uh, jumped out at you and you're like, that's really good. I really want that in my life. And so you maybe even jot down a little note, you stick it in your Bible, and that may be the last time you see it. Uh, Sometimes it ends up kind of in the back somewhere. Maybe you glance at it from time to time if you happen to need a, a bookmark, but it doesn't ever really make it into the application phase of the process. James says that when we don't use self-control, we're missing out on a blessing. The, the end of that last verse said there's a blessing when we don't just hear it, but we actually do it, when we actually apply it, and that takes self-control. Um, the lack of self-control can be one of the main ways that we ruin our reputation and end up putting a little mold on that top bun of our gospel sandwich that we've been talking about, uh, this, this gospel message that we're handing out to the world, um, lack of self-control can put just a little bit of yuck on, on something that we want to present as something that is appetizing to the world. Um, so the best way I know to grow in self-control is simply to practice it. The more we choose to act in accordance with God's word, over our own desires, and the more we experience the blessings that come from doing what he had planned, what he has designed, um, the more easy it becomes. And uh, I find that I found that all areas of self-control, Jesus teaches this, all areas of self-control are wrapped up in the two greatest commandments. Uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, and Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. If we have the rest of it. And the second is is like it. um, Love your neighbor as yourself. If we love with that kind of love, with a God kind of love that, that we've received from him, that means that we are daily laying down our lives for God and we're laying down our lives for others. Um, That to me is kind of the, the epitome of, of self-control. That's, that's dying to what you want and putting God and others first. But we have to remember to be patient with ourselves, knowing that uh, in the end, it is God through his Holy Spirit that does this work in us. This is a process. Um, God has grace for us when we haven't fully implemented it. Um, 
Like I, I think I mentioned last week, we're not going to have it fully implemented today. Uh, yesterday, we're not going to have it fully implemented 10 years from now or the day before we die. This is a process, and God has grace for us in that. So if we ever find ourselves failing, we don't need to try harder and, and just, you know, give it our, our all. I mean, not that there isn't a little bit of, of, um, of decision-making in, in what we do, but it says that we have to get to know God, that that, that strength, so that we do it just in our own, like, ambition and determination, we're going to wear out. But if we go to God and we feel uplifted and encouraged and strengthened by him, then we're not going to burn out in our process of becoming more like him. God says that he has given us everything we need for godly, for living a godly life. And we receive this by knowing him. So with that thought in mind, we're going to add patient endurance. Even when it seems like the building project is not moving along as quickly as we would like it to, maybe we've run into some some issues, uh, maybe we have experienced some injuries, or uh, maybe we're just feeling a little bit tired. Patient endurance is the commitment to stick with it through completion. This is a remembrance of all these precious promises that God has given us. We, we have to remember that God said that he will do these things. And as we remember all the promises that he's given us, um, we can uh, look forward to it with hope, and it gives us endurance to move to completion. Patient endurance is when we use our self-control so that we don't succumb to despair. And when we use our knowledge to apply the verses that we have learned or the knowledge that we have learned uh, for specific situations. So when we're feeling worn out, we can go back to the verse that we read earlier from Isaiah where it says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. We can go back and we can look at that knowledge and we can draw from that and use it to strengthen us and encourage us so that we can endure and continue to grow. In our new life in Christ, we will endure trials and suffering, but we can be encouraged when we draw near to God in prayer, in singing, and even taking those words and speaking them out loud until they are solidly implanted into our hearts and minds. The fifth character trait uh, that we're going to look at is godliness. When, uh, when you've been working with a particular architect long enough, you might begin to understand and learn more about him. You might even start to know what it is that he likes to see in his projects. Some of those things um, may have been things that you struggled with in the beginning, but now you've grown accustomed to. They become habit. They become part of who you are. And even some of the phrases that he, use, that he uses have maybe become part of your vocabulary and you find yourself using them. And when you run into an issue, you start to think, how is it that the architect would handle this situation? You start moving from simple obedience to the things that you've learned to actually adopting his methods, his thinking, and his plans. Godliness is revering God to the point where you strive to be just like him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, um, it says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. 
And in Ephesians 5.1, he says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And ask the worship team to come. We are to imitate God. And then we move on to our seventh, second to last. Oh, our sixth. Sorry, I skipped one. I didn't skip a number, not the, not the attribute. Um, that leads us to verse seven, which is brotherly affection. So now that we've been building for a while and we've learned a lot about how to build and the materials, what they're for, um, how to handle special circumstances, how to endure, um, all of these different things we've grown in. Now we take what we've learned and we use it to encourage one another. We try and um, teach other people the knowledge that we have gained. We share with them some of the experiences that we've had that have strengthened us for the road ahead so that they can even lean on the experiences where God has shown himself faithful to us. Brotherly affection or brotherly love um, is, is an opportunity for us to show love and encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an opportunity for us to practice loving. We get to practice submitting to one another, practice comforting one another, encouraging one another, or even to give to one another when we see that they have a need. If we can't learn to love each other within the family of Christ and those who share in our faith, who share in the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, if we can't show love in that situation, how are we ever going to show love to the world, right? So we start with brotherly affection, and then we add the last component, which is love for everyone. When our passion for the building style and the structural stability and the beauty of the design that the architect, that the architect has um, come up with, when, when we've come, grown with such passion for the architect and his plans, um, now we begin to promote them to the world around us. We want people who've maybe never considered building to look at the benefits of how great the architect and his plan are. We just want everybody to have a chance to work with this architect, to come to know him, and to be able to learn all that he has to show us. John 3.16, some of you may have heard this one, um, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that anyone or everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Love for everyone is a God kind of love. It is not a love that the world knows. Uh, the world is not capable of loving in the way that God loves and the, with the kind of love that God has imparted into us. And as we get to know God more, the more and more we can love others the way he has shown love to us. Um, that is the the epitome. Like I said, these kind of all build on each other and they're, they're somewhat reliant on one another. But getting to the point where you know him so much that you're, you want to, you desire to share his love and his 
uh, what you've experienced in walking with him with others so that they can experience it too. That is our goal. Second uh, Peter verse 8 says, The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sin. This process doesn't have to happen in this particular order. Uh, There's some sense to it. It it seems like a nice progression. Um, But you're more likely to be working on several different areas of this at the same time. Um, The way it kind of laid out in the analogy, you can see how the building materials required the knowledge, which required self-control, which required, you know, the patient endurance, all of them work together and they all kind of grow up at the, at the same time. And so um, they're all important to be thinking about and we definitely don't want to wait till we get done with number five before we start showing love for each other and for God and for, for the world. Um, It seems to me uh, that many of them are dependent on one another, uh, but we don't want to neglect any of them. It is very important that we continue so that we can grow to be more and more productive, more useful um, as we seek to bring glory and honor to God. 1 Peter 10 says, So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you, are, you will never fall away. Verse 11 says, Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord find us all working hard in service to him. We saw that in the beginning that Paul, uh, Peter's goal was to be working hard all the way to the end. We want God to find us working hard in service to him so that on the day of his return, we will gain the most amazing experiential knowledge of having this grand entrance into his kingdom. We read earlier that we are crucified with Christ. It's no longer us that lives, but it's Christ that lives in us. Earlier, I mentioned how Jesus describes our relationship with him as being a vine and we're branches and how life can only come from remaining connected to the vine. Jesus follows up those words about being connected to him. In John 15, verse 9 through 11, it says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey the Father's commandments and remain in his love. I told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, my joy will overflow. It says that we obey his commandments. That's, that's essentially saying we're implementing the virtues and the promises and things that he has for us. Um, we're becoming more like him and that in that we are overflowing with his joy. There's an overflowing joy when we approach him as willing servants in love with the master and having a view of of God where we revere him 
and desire to become more and more like him. So today, as we prepare to go, I pray that you go in the fruit-producing power of the Holy Spirit, sharing the love of Jesus Christ with others in the body of Christ and with the world at large, and that we do this to bring glory to a God that we are walking with, that we have a relationship with, that we're depending on, and we're striving to become more and more like. In Jesus' name, amen.